socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Welcome to episode 96. 96. It's getting up there. Of You Don't Have to Yell, the home for the politically exhausted majority. Once again, it is the incredible rhyme animal, the unbeatable bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here to take us on our merry way. Now, a couple weeks back, we had Chris Basso of Northeastern University on to discuss America's foreign policy, and he pretty much drew a line, a dotted line, but he drew a line between our decision to subsidize overproduction of food, making food cheap, and our obesity epidemic, which was enabled by the fact we could now afford to get fat. Now, this perked up the ears of one listener, that listener being the data monkey, yes, he listens to, who wanted in on the action. Now, in addition to being the guy I go to for statistical analysis, he is also a walking encyclopedia of nutrition. He is the only middle-aged dude I know who's gotten six-pack abs, which I respect, and then lost them after realizing it was more fun not to have them, which I also respect almost even more. So he came on to share some of his knowledge, talk about the American diet, how U.S. policy enables it, and how there is a whole new flavor industrial complex that hooks us on Doritos. Trigger warning, we totally trash food chemists, so apologies to any who are listening right now. I will be back at the end with final thoughts. So, Mike, it's been a while. When was yeah. the last time you were on? Probably the McGriddle episode. It was right? the McGriddle. Oh, my goodness. McGriddle. It yeah. was the McGriddle episode. And that is, oddly enough, a perfect episode or a perfect dovetail into today's topic because the the very existence of the McGriddle is dependent on America's agricultural policy, I learned. Okay. Is that clever? Did, that I, is, did I do that? That is clever. What a segue. Did what I do that? Did I segue? I mean, that was I pretty massive. I don't want to blaspheme the McGriddle in any way because it, uh, it is definitely a, uh, a, a triumph to uh, sweet and salty um, and savory. But, uh, but what, what did you learn? Our entire diet is the byproduct of an agricultural policy that encourages overproduction uh, that started about 50 years ago. And you can pretty much draw a, you can pretty much draw a line between that policy and uh, America's obesity epidemic because that favored large farms. It favored row crops. It, uh, as a result, there was a lot of soybean, a lot of corn produce, which lowered the cost of feed and by that lowered the cost of meat. And so now we have this very like meat and carb rich diet as a result of this decision back in 1970s to subsidize overproduction as opposed to what they did prior, which was subsidize underproduction or subsidize, you know, uh, a stability of supply. Uh, yeah. And even that is uh, follows on from the post-World War II when you had uh, munitions factories left over from, uh, from the war that were repurposed um, under what they call the Haber-Bosch process to create uh, fertilizer. Oh, the same, the same, a lot of the same processes are used to, uh, to create. Um, and so all of those facilities were repurposed to make uh, that made gunpowder went on to make uh, fertilizer that uh, can be used for, um, for lots of row cropping. And the industrialization of the farms followed very quickly after that. Yeah, and so I know that th there were two. There were two reasons why I wanted you to talk about this. Which is number one, I know you have a very keen interest in the American diet, and number two, this kind of harkens back to an episode we did last year 
about late stage U.S. capitalism resembling late stage Soviet communism in this right yeah it's sort of like well because we talked about like the illusion of choice and the illusion of choice to me is when i walk through the cereal aisle right and i am confronted with a simultaneous triumph and defeat of capitalism which is cheerios right they are there are literally like i don't know what at this point 20 different types of Cheerios in that aisle. If I Probably. walk in, I'm confronted with a wall of Cheerios that, that go from chocolate to fruit to apple cinnamon to whatever, like, you know, lemon cracked pepper. I mean, you, you name it, they've got a <laughs> brand of Cheerios that's Sriracha. Yeah, like. <laughs> mm, honey Nut Cheerios cereal. What a yummy part of a good breakfast. And on the one hand, you'd say, wow, look at this incredible diversity that can, uh, can satisfy the the marginal uh, tastes of any consumer and their and their utility, right? Mm-hmm. On the other hand, they're all kind of vaguely tasteless, crunchy O's of oats that came from like the same farm that have just been slightly altered in flavor by international flavors and fragrances. Yeah, yeah, it's a Cambrian explosion of Cheerios. <laughs> And the Oreo aisle is is no less demented than, than that one, right? The red velvet cake Oreos, the the carrot cake Oreos. I mean, and so or the goldfish. You got kids, so you get to like the, yeah. the insane. But they're all this sort of same vaguely tasteless, like you know, hard tack that you're eating. That's like vaguely cheese flavored or pizza flavored. I mean, it's all just like, and they're all. And this is the most important part incredibly nutritionally vapid despite you know uh the you know the things emblazoned across the across the um the the packaging right it's almost like um you almost want to say that uh the the more something has to advertise to you its nutritional value the less nutritional value it probably has (laughs) Because, you know, when I walk by the asparagus, they don't have to be like nutritionally dense yeah. asparagus. Yeah, it's not like the oranges are like great source of vitamin C. Heart healthy apples. They don't really, uh, they don't have to tell me that. But they, they got to let me know when I'm reaching for the Oreos or that, that it's fat free or it's low fat. Or they got to tell me that it's heart healthy Cheerios or you know, like, this is no no offense to the Oreo or Cheerio people. But um, it's just... Uh, I, I'm not sure that this is a, a sign of anything good. Um, in fact, the reality is that most of the products in the center of the store that make up the majority of the footprint of any modern supermarket are, are really just the same sort of several ingredients that have been recast in multiple different ways. It's become some vague version of Taco Bell where they just take like six ingredients and reform them in different ways to sell them in colored packaging to you. Before I get to what I'd like to ask, I I need like my mind is sort of hung up on this diversity of Cheerios, and mm-hmm. I'm just picturing some boardroom with some like Steve Jobs like black turtleneck and wire rim glasses clad Cheerio visionary who's like we're taking Cheerios to places nobody ever thought of, you know, and just like we've got to push the boundaries of what we think the Cheerio is. We have to think outside the hoop, you know, you exactly. know, exactly. so that's the first thing I got to get that out. Of, I got, got, got to get that image out of my head. There are, uh, there are literally people giving PowerPoint presentations on this somewhere, which is just, you know, simultaneously amazing and, and disturbing. <laughs> I would love to know. I would love to know what Cheerio spends on Cheerio R and D and Cheerio focus groups. Like just stop it. Just mm. if we look back to the goal of agricultural policy in the first place, right, it's to ensure a stable food supply. And, uh, and, and, and it's existed for as long as nations have existed. But, you know, the incarnation we know now where the federal government has this huge involvement was really a creation of FDR, which was really a response to the uh, Dust Bowl. And so the, the purpose of it is just. But it almost seems as if right now the policy we've created has Americans effectively starving on a full stomach. Yeah, because well, because you, you sort of the only numbers that count are numbers that are counted, 
right? So if your if your goal is to create cheap calories, congratulations, we did it. Um, you know, I mean, the average the average American spends less than ten percent of their their disposable income on food now, right? And half of that, more than half of that is on takeout and stuff on, on going out to restaurants and things. So that's not even in-house, like feeding yourself or cooking to feed yourself. That's, so that's probably, that's less than, well, less than 5% of disposable income that's spent on that. I guess that's, that's, again, it's simultaneously, I guess, a success. The problem is at the same time, the total daily calories that anyone's, um, that eats over the last sort of 30 years or so, has increased pretty dramatically. And as you can imagine, anytime any industry that's trying to grow, I mean, you just have to focus on what the growth algorithm is. I mean, population growth, calories consumed per person, right? I mean, that's sort of or price per and then price per calorie, right? There's pretty like you either I either, you know, just keep selling, you know, 1% more as the population grows, or eventually even less than that, or I get you to eat more or pay more for what you eat. But that's really all I can do to kind of grow in that scenario, right? Um, and so if you're getting cheaper and cheaper calories, well, then we have to sort of repackage them in fun colored packaging to help make you pay more for them in some way. Um, and maybe that's putting cinnamon sugar and sriracha or whatever on them. <laughs> um, and simultaneously also trying to get you to eat more of them, which is to sort of hack your ability to uh, appetite control so that you can, can, you'll continue to consume more of it. Right. So we don't want, we, you know, no one can eat just one, Dan, you know, you gotta, you gotta crunch all you want. We'll make more, you know, this kind (laughs) of that, that whole idea of like, we want you to consume and we don't want you to ever stop eating. Like, cause we want it. And they don't pay the cost of the other side of it, which is the healthcare costs, which are all off balance sheets. So, um, in that sense, because there, there's a huge time arbitrage between when you're eating like crap and when it's going to have the end result, right. Is, is, um, you know, down the road. And oh, by the way, most people aren't paying directly for the cost of that. They do certainly in their quality of life, but financially less so. Um, so not surprisingly, if like the average calories have gone up, you know, not only have the calories gone up, but the, the, the components of those calories have changed, right? We eat, we eat more fat, more carbs, less protein, you know, per, um, you know, as a percentage of your diet. And shockingly, that has led to adult obesity that's up, you know, some whatever, 60 plus percent over the last 20 years. Um, and, and an oncoming train that is like diabetes and other, like type 2 diabetes and other, you know, healthcare disasters associated with that obesity that is going to be coming as the population ages. When we were kids and we were growing up, think about how many people you knew with asthma or how many people you knew with a peanut allergy, right? I didn't know one person with a peanut allergy. I knew we knew one person with asthma, one, that was it. Now you look at the rise of autoimmune disorders in kids it's, it, it doesn't come from nowhere. And again, I'm, I'm not here to say that our, the change in our diet in the 1970s can be, or that started in the 1970s can be directly tied to this, but it's just, it's another neat coincidence. That the- well, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, you can't, it's hard to draw direct lines because there haven't been enough studies done on all of it and, or even studies that have been done have probably been varied because there are certainly plenty of interests that don't want you to, to draw these conclusions. Yeah. Um, but it is like a, a very big sort of, you know, randomized trial that we've basically conducted over multiple decades. And it's pretty clear what the result is. It hasn't, it hasn't led to improved health overall. It's led to rising obesity and diabetes. I mean, <laughs> um, that's pretty, that's pretty clear. And I, and I think that comes again, I think it, you know, you, you can speculate that that likely comes from the, um, decline in the, uh, in the composition of the diet, the increased calories, the decline in the composition, right? So like the energy to, to protein sort of ratio of the diet has changed pretty dramatically. And, um, I think the number I saw at one point, was that, you know, if you look at hunter-gatherer societies, very few of which left to, to themselves are obese, right? In fact, it's usually the other way around, right? You're kind of 
making sure you're reaching your calorie um, needs, uh, you know, trying to, to, to maintain and reach like the necessary, um, you know, caloric needs and nutrient needs. Um, but there, you know, diet could be anywhere from 25 to 30% sort of protein where the average, you know, American diet is now down to something like 10 to 15%, I think is the numbers I've seen, um, protein, which means that all the excess you're eating is all just kind of energy, which is just sort of, you know, fats and carbs, which together, you know, are meant to fatten you up. <laughs> That's what they do. When you talk about percentage too, is that, you know, a hunter gatherer might, let's say, eat a pig, for example, right? You know, if I hunt a wild pig, eat the pig. But I might eat the same amount of pig, but it might be in between a bun, for example. So is it effectively that I'm eating more calories, so I might be eating the same amount of protein and the percentage is just less? Or is it a case where we're just eating less protein on the whole? I think it's, uh, well, it's a little bit of both. I'd say that you can actually look and see that, like, I think protein consumption has gone up but it's actually gone up less than the total calorie amount has gone up. Right. So that's what you mean. So we're eating more in total, but the percentage of what we're eating is less, uh, is less, um, protein and more, uh, and more fats and carbohydrates. And so, you know, what does that, what does that mean? I mean, I, I suspect what that means is that, you know, you likely, we likely eat more to protein satiety than we do like, you know, carbohydrates and fats, if anything, your body's kind of, I think, you know, wired to want like, you know, uh, cheap, cheap calories, like, you know, carbs and, and like sugars and fats and things like you, it's very hard to find a lot of sugar left to your own devices. It's kind of hard to find a lot of sugar out there in the wild, right? You can like lick a maple tree or like stick your hand in a bee's nest, but like, yeah. <laughs> there's not a lot of ways to, you know, there's not a lot of ways to get like mainline sugar to yourself versus now we have like, you know, the 64 ounce soda available at every, uh, you know, at every roadside gas station convenience store. Right. So, I mean, that availability by itself just means that like you're washing down way more calories. Right. So it's not even the bun, right. It's like, so is it the hamburger that's killing you or is it the bun, the fries and the, and the 32 ounce soda next to it? Right. Like that's the question. Like I'd be hard for it to imagine that if you're just reading like hamburger, like skip the bun, just eat the, just eat the patties. We were eating nothing but hamburger patties. I'm having a hard time imagining a person would be like wildly overweight. How much of this is is effectively government sponsored in the sense that if we were to just fundamentally go back, if we were to fundamentally change our, poli- our, our farm policy and just say, yep, you know what, we're going back to this production control model we used pre-1970, does that just solve the problem? Does that change things, do you feel? I mean, it would take a while, I think. I mean, the problem is like the structure of the of the whole like all of farming, like the, the the structure of it is has changed so much, right? I mean, you go back, go back a hundred years, and like you know, half of the country practically was were farmers, right? Or or worked or and and or raised food for themselves, right? Like, um, you know, by the nineteen seventies, your point, like farm numbers had dropped off, you know there were maybe less than 3 million farms is now maybe 2 million farms. Those average farms have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. Again, partly a triumph of efficiency. Like, so we don't want to, we don't want to, you know, I want to belittle that. Right. I mean, cause there's certainly a case that can be made where I can show you lots of charts that go up into the right in terms of yields and all the things that we would think are like, you know, these are all positives, but at the same time, so has, you know, um, so has the amount of fertilizer used, right? Or, but or even more importantly, I'd say, and the one that to me is a head scratcher in terms of its sustainability would be the estimates of how much energy it takes to produce food. At the end of the day, food is energy, right? It's food like we we fuel ourselves with this to to get around and do what we do, and like any estimates of, I mean, you can you can find sort of any you could do, do this math yourself, but there's also estimates out there that say that it takes ten total calories to make one calorie of food in our current 
system. So the efficiency to some degree is really just a triumph of fossil fuels, right? It's it's really, I mean, there's books like eating fossil fuels and other things that have been written about some of this. So, so you get like the a lot of the efficiency really comes from repurposing fossil fuels, right? Um, you know, industrial fertilizer for the most part is either mined or processed from natural gas. Um, you, and then you, you know, the mechanization of the industrial farm is largely a result of energy, right? I mean, that's really the ability to have high density energy that creates this thing. So it just leads to a highly energy intensive uh, overall industry. A lot of people don't understand that years ago, farmers used to let their fields lie fallow. They wouldn't farm their entire, you know, every plot of land they had because they needed time for the soil to regain nutrients and and so on. And now effectively what you have in the farm belt is you have this, this, this type of farming, this practice that effectively uses the soil just as a vessel to hold the plant. So there's no interchange of nutrients between the plant and the soil. It is literally the the soil holds the plant and then we dump a bunch of petroleum fertilizer on top of it and then we get these great out this great output. Awesome in terms of yield. The only downside is that topsoil has been consistently eroding and and ironically a farm policy that was originally developed in response to an ecological disaster is now creating one. Not only is the composition of the diet led to reduce nutrient um, levels in the in in what we consume, but the actual these policies have led to this as well. Because you look at studies that have compared just like for like nutrient levels in garden crops over the last you know 20, 30 years and 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 then looking back to say the 1950s and comparing some of these, you can see like declines in the concentrations of all the important nutrients across these things. So literally we can say an apples to apples comparison, right? Like an apple has fewer nutrients than an apple did 40 years ago. So again, that, that leads to more consumption of things to get the same nutrient density. Right? Why is and that? I mean, it's partly what you were just saying, which is that if you don't give the soil a chance to to actually, if you're eroding topsoil and using it just to sort of hold a structure in place and using lots of chemicals to to help boost your growth of things, then they don't have the same. And and just the engineering of what we've done to to drive, like we want, you know, I mean, in the case of apples, like we want them to be super shiny and sweet and red or and shelf life and they you know you can't optimize on every vector right like that's like i mean it's the first rule of optimization is you can't optimize every you can't have max everything right like yep. you have to make trade-offs and so if you're trading them off to to look good to be sweet to be you know crunchy to whatever like then you have to it has to give up something somewhere else and and i think like we've basically seen like nutrient levels of a lot of these even even stuff that like for like in the store like vegetables and things that are not as nutrient dense as they once were, whether it's because of the quality of the soil, whether it's because of the, um, you know, the, the, just the, what they bred them for. I mean, it's just kind of, there's a lot of different things that work there. Yeah. I was going to go back to your other point too, because I wanted to like, a lot of times I hear people say, you know, like meat consumption and how that's impacted this, but it's really, it's kind of interesting because I don't think like meat consumption is a tough one to get your arms around because the, when you look at the total amount that like you say, like, Oh, people eat so much meat, but actually what's grown, like red meat consumption is actually not grown in, in the U S what's really, when you look at meat growth, it's really almost all around chicken. And even within that, it's like chicken patties and chicken nuggets, like stuff like that is where all the growth has really, really? from. Disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> disgusting we eat a lot of nuggets and fries dude we as americans like that's and, and then he sort of like then they'll kind of say like oh look at the increase in meat consumption but the reality is we just we eat a lot of chicken nuggets that's not an increase in meat consumption that is that is we are now eating parts of the chicken we never ate before that's what that is but um so but but i mean come back to where we started right like this is i guess i just i come back on like what are these fallouts of some of this like the mass sort of um oligopolization of of food and um 
you know, I, I think it's sort of led to simultaneously more and less choice as we've, as we kind of talked about, mm-hmm. um, it's sort of seemingly you have a lot more choice, um, in, and, and I think we do, but then at the same time, we're also being marketed a very limited number of things with only slight changes to them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, and I think that probably has a lot to do with just the, again, this like this, the, the, the growth and industrialization of the entire food complex over the last, you know, 40, 50 years. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a recurrent theme when you introduce large amounts of government funding, it tends to favor consolidation over innovation. It tends to favor consolidation over efficiency uh, and, and, and it, it always seems to backfire. In a lot of ways, the, the, the growth and concentration of the industry has led to hyper-efficiency. The problem is it's just not efficient across all the things that we need it to be efficient across, right? Okay. I think that's where I, my, my disagreement would be because I think you could probably find, you know, not to pick on anybody, I'm sure I could find like a heritage foundation or somebody person who's going to come in here and argue very vociferously and, and to some degree accurately. And like, you know, our food system is amazing. And it is. <laughs> um, it's kind of like the way a smartphone is amazing. It is. Is it without costs? No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> my, we all have like a bone spur growing in the back of our head from staring down at this glowing rectangle all the time. And you got kids that are like addicted to these things, like a you know a rat with a like a pellet. I mean, like yeah, it, it there's costs to it. They're also it's also amazing, and like the food systems are different, right? Like it's, it's amazing. Like we produce things super hyper efficiently. Problem is that we produce and with uh, insane variety in some ways, but what are the costs of all that? And the costs seem to be that we're, we have like a, you know, um, some real negative impacts on our overall health. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, and part of that subsidy to some degree, like to your point, which is sort of not, acknowledged is you know if you look at sort of medicare right like you, you're basically offering to pay like we're trying to cover the the payment for many of these lifestyle problems that are going to result from what you've been marketed and what you've consumed for the better part of your early part of your life right so then we're socializing the costs associated with this but privatizing profits associated with 40% folks, that's the number of people in America who don't identify with either major party, bigger than either of them in terms of voters. 60% is the number of Americans who feel another major party is needed. Both are a signal something's wrong, and both are a signal Americans are looking for something more, and that is why you listen to You Don't Have to Yell. Now, nothing's going to change until we open up the two-party system to real political competition. And in the right numbers, we can make this happen. So here are two ways you can help. Number one, if you dig the content on YDHTY and you know someone else who would, please share this show with them. The goal of YDHTY is not just to push for electoral reform, but to get the center back into the conversation. And this podcast grows by word of mouth. Number two, if you want to take action in your state, visit rankthevote.us. It's an organization focused on growing the ranked choice voting movement in all 50 states. And while there are no shortages of ways to reform elections in this country, ranked choice voting is by far the most practical and effective way to make elected officials accountable to the majority of voters, not just the parties. 2020 is going to be a decade of change, and I hope you'll choose to join me in making the change for the better. And now, back to the episode. I, I will tell you what. I have always thought, if you look at the parts of the country that are against like Medicare for all, they also happen to be 
the parts of the country that have the largest amount of chronic illness related primarily to obesity, but to a lesser extent, smoking is another one. And that's kind of, kind of drifted out. So I can understand why somebody would be against the government effectively bailing out a lifetime of bad choices. Yeah. That being said, I also have some sympathy for the fact that I, I do look, I don't want to take personal responsibility totally out of the equation. However, when you look at the American diet on the whole, and you look at how, to your point, it favors cheap calories and it it favors cheap calories over nutrients. And then you look at our infrastructure and you look at how most cities are structured for driving. And, and to be frank, are structured against walking. You know, we live in the Northeast where we're living with like this, you know, 16th century infrastructure. So we kind of have to walk because it's such a pain in the ass to get anywhere. But, you know, you live in, you live in Chicago, you live in uh, Dallas, you live in Los Angeles, you know, all these cities that really saw their growth post-World War II uh, aren't structured for just that basic calorie expenditure you're going to get walking around. I made the mistake once of trying to walk back from a convention site in Las Vegas. Cause like, I, I was like, Oh, well the hotel's only a couple of miles. I'll just walk. Oh God. I was, yeah. took my life in my hands trying to cross like four lane. <laughs> oh yeah. It's like a game of Frogger. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> there was like no way to get there. It was like, as the crow flies, it was like a mile from the conventions or the hotel, but it was literally impossible to walk. It was like you, I, I ended up walking probably four miles to find the route that would get me back there. Like it was just crazy. Yeah. And so I do like, so I, you know, I, I, I definitely feel like, a certain amount of our inability to maintain healthy weight is structural. It, it, it is a lot harder for us to maintain a healthy weight as a result of the decisions we make, as a result of where we choose to invest. Yeah, and there's a great book too. Like, um, you know, I think you, you have to I have to ask what you're up against. Like, I think I'm, I'm look. I'm a big believer in personal responsibility and personal choice and all those things. But I also am a realist about like what are you up against? Yeah, right. And you're up against, you know, as we said, like the, the not to pick on the Cheerios people, but you're up against like a, a boardroom full of Cheerios people who are trying to figure out how to hack your taste buds to get you to eat more Cheerios. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, I mean, they are, there's a book called the Dorito effect that is like on the history of the artificial flavorings industry and everything. And it's, it's great. Um, yeah. it, uh, if you want to grab it, you could throw it, put it in the show notes because people should definitely read it. It's fascinating. I will. Yeah. Um, but it talks about just like the, I mean, exactly like the creation of the Dorito, like this idea of like a corn chip that tastes like nacho cheese, right? Like your, your brain is thinking I'm getting, I'm eating one of these things and I'm getting far more protein than you actually are getting eating it. So of course you reach into the bag and grab another one. Cause you're like, Oh, this is a great source of protein. Like, cause as my taste buds keep telling me, this has got, it's loaded with cheese and meat and other things that would be nutrient dense. There's no nutrient density in it. So you're just like, you just keep going, trying to find like eat enough of it to get the density that you, that you taste in it. Um, so it's just this idea that you've basically hacked your ability. Like it's a, it's a biological hack of your own, of your own system. Right. And like, and look, that's not, that's not to, to, you know, Doritos are kind of weirdly addictive and, and sort of good when I'm watching the Super Bowl, but, um, but they are like, it's been designed to get you to eat more of it. Like the whole point, right? Like this is so, and you're up against a, uh, people who are like their whole goal is to sell more of these and get people to eat more of them. I am finding this fascinating. When you think about the, the amount of education somebody needs to do that. Like they had to go to school to be, they had to go to school. Like a flavor chemist. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That's a, that's a thing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You had to go and get, that's a well-paid job. How much do they make? I don't know. I mean, I mean, take a, take a stab. They're not getting minimum wage for sure. No, no, no. I mean, that's a, you know, we're talking masters and postdoc degrees. So, I mean, yeah, we're, it's, uh, it's insane. There's like a whole school that just pumps these people out. There's like a grad, think about it for a second. 
There is, there is a person, a professor, right, who is the advisor on somebody writing their thesis who is going to go on and use what they learned to make a tastier Dorito. There's a limit to asking people to be personally responsible only because at some point you have to acknowledge that it's like you're you're fighting a war against like, you know, you brought a knife to a gunfight. Right? Yeah, you're up, against, <laughs> you're up against the flavor think tank. Yeah, that is that is out to like undermine your willpower. And then we're sort of assuming that you have, every person has sort of an endless uh, supply of willpower that they can muster against all of these things. Let's just take you live in Houston. The stars at night are big and bright. I'll give Houston for an example, because I know Houston is like, it's, it's a sprawling city and everybody drives like eight hours to get anywhere, right? So you drive two hours to work, you drive two hours back from work, right? Okay, that's four hours, eight hours at work, right? Okay, now you've got 12 hours of your day that is consumed just with work or commuting to and from work. And then, okay, so you want to get eight hours of sleep. So now you have four hours to budget, Right. So there's, let's say, one hour, let's say two hours if you have kids, two hours getting ready, getting out the door, then another hour to get them dinner. You've got like zero hours to work out. If you did have, let's say, an hour to exercise, it's going to take you like 20 to 30 minutes to drive to the gym anyway. Mike, dare I say, the chips are stacked against you. Yes. The, the nacho chips are stacked against you. That's good. That was quality. I like that. Though. You like that one? Uh, no, I mean, that, I think that's, I think that's right. Um, you know, and again, like uh, the nice thing is I, I think the, where the other side of the argument is, is that we're having this conversation and people like, we're not the only ones having this conversation. So people will continue. There are lots of great people writing about this stuff. And, and I think it will become, um, I think it will become acknowledged over time that, that, you know, we need to rethink what we're doing with food. I think, and this is, I'm probably going to offend a lot of people now though. Um, so Trigger warning. (laughs) Trigger warning. You have to wonder, right, when we're up against these things. And again, the the tinfoil, Mike's tinfoil hat is coming out here. So um, so this is like we argued for these like low fat, high grain FDA diets, eat wheat thins and low fat stuff because it was going to be so good for you to result in more obesity, diabetes, and heart disease than we had prior to that. Mm -hmm. Now we're trying to sell you wheat thins because they're vegan and better for the planet (laughs) (laughs) because they weren't better for you, but maybe now they're better for the climate. (laughs) And, And I have to speculate that I feel like, oh boy, this is going to really offend some people, uh, that like the vegan plant push is is being aided and abetted by uh, people who stand to benefit selling highly colored packages of vegan friendly food. Oh, have you ever have you ever seen vegan food? I mean, it's a lot of the stuff is, I mean, again, you, you can be a vegan and do it right and, and eat vegetables all around from the, from the side of the, of the grocery store, or even go to a local farm and get your stuff. But then there's just like eating a bunch of packaged things that are, that are vegan, uh, or, or paleo or pick your thing. But like, if you're, if you, if you've already wandered into the center of the aisle and you're buying things because, and somehow thinking that's, that's helping anything you've, yeah, that is a vic- you are a victim of marketing, not, not reality. Yeah. No, I, so I can attest, I have seen every variety of prepackaged vegan food out there. And it's not even like, like, I'm not, look, I'll, I'll, I'll eat a meal that's freshly prepared, but if it comes out of like, if it comes out of the freezer aisle, you know, I have my doubts. And I can, and I can tell, because you can tell this is going on to some degree because a lot of the statistics we're shown are wildly manipulated, right? I mean, um, I think there's, you know, I mean, just this idea, I mean, just use your common sense when you sort of ask about, you know, when they, they give you these numbers about like what meat consumption is, is percentage of, 
the uh, of greenhouse gas emissions. And it doesn't pass like even the most basic common sense sniff test if you actually look at those numbers. I mean, cow farts you know, like 14 percent of greenhouse gas emissions or something. You're like, that's not come on more more than passenger cars. Really? Give me a break. There are like, what, seven, eight billion people farting constantly every day. And it's the cow's fault. Oh, and especially since in the U.S., I mean, just look at it this way. Like in the U.S., the actual like um, ruminant herd hasn't grown in decades. We don't have, like so. So somehow the methane emissions from from these have grown, like they've doubled. Yeah. But but the actual herd has stayed relatively flat. So that begs the question of like, are we measuring it correctly? I suspect we're not. Um, are we? Or is it po- po- potentially have something to do with how we're we're raising them and how we're farming them, that could very well be possibly true. Are we conflating U.S. statistics and global statistics? So I would say like the the percentage of, of carbon emissions or greenhouse gas emissions coming from production in the U.S. is quite a bit less, I think, than, than what you'd see in sort of less efficient systems. Um, but more importantly, and this is kind of comes back to the point about the about letting um, you know some of your cropland lie fallow, uh, to rebuild nutrient density, uh, there's a, a school of thought that's arguing, I think, quite quite well that regenerative practices are needed. That livestock husbandry is actually hugely regenerative um, and could be carbon capturing. There was a good study um, on, I think it's called White Oak Pastures. If you, if you Google it, you'll find um, there was a good study on looking at their regenerative practices and. And they had an independent consultant who did an analysis of their carbon uh, emissions and found that their regenerative livestock practices were actually carbon negative. They're actually helping to rebuild soil, right? These are grass-fed and uh, well, well-maintained, um, mobile pastures, like a whole thing that they do to, to sort of manage this. Uh, was actually rebuilding enough of the grassland and the root structure that was pulling carbon out of the air. So the, the, the net result of the whole system was actually a net negative. So I think the debate there is not really being had in an intelligent fashion. I mean, I think it's being run roughshod over by, you know, Certain areas that are they're able to see practices are working. There's a debate as to whether or not those regenerative practices could really be scaled. That's a good question. We don't know. Like how how like I mean, this is stuff that should be should be these questions should be asked. But on the other side of that, we have this kind of running roughshod over. Um, yeah, it's bad for the planet. We should all go vegan. And I I would tell you combine some of that with your points about the topsoil erosion. And I would tell you, I think if we all tried to just like simultaneously eat, you know, you know, beyond burgers, again, not beyond burger people, I think we'd run out of like topsoil in 40 years and be screwed. So, I mean, (laughs) it doesn't like, like we're not, it's, we don't, not everything can be, uh, is, is sort of an endless, um, you know, resource. So I, I think uh, that's, that's where I think some of these questions need to be sort of more carefully um, reviewed. Obviously, it's a dangerous question to ask, what's the solution? Because there's a bunch. But if we take a focus strictly on government policy, if we take the, the focus strictly on things we can vote for, what do we change? I don't know the answer to this. So maybe somebody, maybe one of your other listeners does. I mean, can you use like a food subsidy program, right? Can those be used at a for a CSA share? Could they be used at a local for at a local farm or a local farmers market? Can they be or are they only allowed to buy things through supermarkets and convenience stores that can then sell you packaged food? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean that's just I mean that would be I don't I don't really answer that question. I honestly maybe somebody does. Um but I find like rebuilding, I, just, I think rebuilding more local um, food um, and acknowledging, I guess this would take an acknowledgement. I don't want to sound like a, a classist asshole, but like, because of this, I mean, it's going to be easy to paint this. But I think it's just, I think it's just a recognition that we probably have reached the bottom of what we should be paying for food and thinking more about uh, paying 
more for higher quality food and expecting more from your food. You know what I mean? And I don't, and I can, that can be very regressive. So I don't want to be, I, I don't, I'm not trying to say that everybody should be, have to pay more for food. That's, I'm not arguing for taxing food. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we just have to recognize that like the cheaper it gets, the worse it probably is for you is kind of my, my point, right? Like, so I, at some point you have to sort of like, we have to recognize that you want to build more, you want to incent more like local production of nutrient dense foods. I think that gets to a much larger question about this country. And, you know, as you were saying that, I was thinking about one of the first episodes of this podcast was back in, it was October of 2019. And I talked to uh, somebody who had moved here from Ireland. So moved to Tulsa because his wife's from Tulsa. And he was so disgusted with the meat in this country that he actually started hunting. And the interesting thing that we, we, we got into a much bigger conversation about the way we structure society, uh, but we place so much on individual like self-governance and we put so much on personal responsibility and, and which is fine, but we also don't, as part of that, we don't have structures in place to for lack of a better phrasing, protect people from bad choices. And so a great example is you go into Whole Foods where you're going to pay more for your groceries, but what they sell in Whole Foods is the standard for the EU. So if you are your average everyday consumer in in an EU country, what you are buying has already been vetted in the same manner. And we just allow people to make unhealthy decisions. And, and I think it's a false, it's, I, I don't think it's intellectually honest to say that we, we give people the freedom to, because if you are living paycheck to paycheck, are you really free to choose the more nutritious, more expensive item? The flip side of that as well is if you do look at how America takes action, we, we tend to disfavor government intervention just on the whole as a country, but the market tends to catch up eventually, not without leaving a much larger body count than any other country would accept. But even if you take a look at what's going on around climate change today, right? 10 years ago, it didn't matter. You know, 10 years ago, your average company maybe gave a nod to it but now it's like you have you have companies who are actively looking to become carbon neutral you know uh, americans american auto manufacturers are actively pursuing uh not to say i, I wouldn't say an electric vehicle is carbon neutral but are are actively producing electric vehicles and actively moving away from fossil fuels and that's the result of public opinion um so there's no reason to believe that that same sort of market sentiment couldn't happen in food. No, and I think it to be not to totally because I don't want to um, I don't want to pay be a like disservice to some of these companies. So we mm-hmm. we started off sort of picking on Cheerios and I was which is General Mills, right? Yeah. Um, so I'll actually throw them maybe a compliment on the other side. I mean, so I also say I think you're right. They're responding to market demands, which is a sign that some things are changing. I mean, General Mills bought. I believe I have this right, so I don't. I want to. I'm going to have to fact check, make sure I'm yeah. correct. I believe that they bought, say, like Epic Bars, like was a business. You you've probably seen them in the store, right? These are you know they sourced through independent farms that were that are uh, using regenerative practices and so i the goal of that acquisition if my understanding was correct was not necessarily to buy just the brand but was actually to better understand what they were doing on the sourcing side and this was all about actually starting to start to think about their own supply chain right and that's hmm. kind of to your point it's like this pressure around sustainability is starting to reach these companies and they're seeing them. So it's simultaneously coming from say shareholders, but then on the other hand, it's also coming from the marketplace where people are seeing, you know, you are seeing demand for like a shift in, in some of the um, choices that people want to make because this information is, is out and people understand it. And we're starting to get a, even if the, 
you know, the FDA hasn't changed the food pyramid, right? People are starting to understand what's going on here. I mean, just see the popularity, just go, just Google the popularity of, you know, the, the phrase low carb, right, over the last 15 years. And quite frankly, as you and I both know, anybody who's experimented with it for even like a couple of weeks loses weight, right? <laughs> so they oh, yeah. figure it out pretty fast that, you know, who you're going to believe me or your lion eyes kind of thing. Like, I mean, yeah. it's pretty easy to, like, yeah. to figure out what's going on there. I just had dinner with a friend the other night. I dropped like 25 pounds in the last couple of months. I said, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I just cut out carbs. I was like, I, I, this is so obvious what's going on here. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is the dumbest thing, but it works. It works, people. And that's really just like, you know, again, it's just cutting down your 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 total energy intake, right? Your simple energy intake is is coming down. You're putting again your blood sugar balance. It's going to have in fact as people figure this out, like it's going to come just like I feel like it's it doesn't have to come from the top down. It's not the government dictating to you that this is what you should do. If anything, we're going to sit there with this FDA food pyramid out there that's like increasingly just like outdated and absurd. We're all laughing at, and like eventually word will just get around through like social media and other things that people understand. Like these are bad, like. And the demand will be there. And so maybe maybe there's the signs that that's actually shifting some of the corporate practices as well. If you liked what you heard, please share and leave a review. And if you haven't yet, subscribe to get a piping hot, fresh episode of YDHTY delivered straight to your ears every week after it's been allowed appropriate time to cool. So getting back to the Chris Basso episode... We learned the federal government was effectively subsidizing agricultural practices that degrade the environment and our health. And in this episode, we learned that this very same program made room for a whole industry of people paid to make things taste like something they're not. Now, we've had a few guests on this year who've made me keenly aware of how some of the big structures we put in place World War II, and frankly ones that cost a lot of money, have come at the expense of our fiscal and physical health. And I'm thinking specifically of Chuck Marone from Strong Towns earlier this year, who talked about how infrastructure has painted us into a fiscally unsustainable corner that also results in unwalkable communities. And Chris Basso kind of picked this up, talking about how our efforts to secure the food supply from ecological disaster is now actually causing one. And I would not consider myself a knee-jerk, small government guy, but it is becoming really tough not to be one the longer I do this thing. If you'd like to read more on the subject of flavor trickery, you can visit ydhty.com. Click on where it says episodes. You will be brought to the show notes. The episode will be right there. You're smart enough to find it. As always, music courtesy of QuellerTac. YDHTY's editorial advisor is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is painstakingly and thoughtfully produced in North Carolina, United States of America, by the big Geno, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye-bye.